Hello, and welcome to another UK Column interview. My name is Debbie Evans, and today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back Roger Meacock, our consultant veterinary surgeon. But before I bring Roger on screen, I just want to throw a few questions to our audience because, you know, just a few decades ago, the UK was a very different place. We were self sufficient, grow your own. That's what we did. Allotments were a necessity, they weren't a luxury. Today, we are reliant on imports of food, of meat, to feed our population. Today's convenience and speed has replaced our need to cultivate and grow our own food. And we go into a supermarket, how many of us really consider where that food has come from? Where, it, where did it originate from? Who has worked the land to produce that food for us? Are we in the UK in danger of losing farming? And I think there's a lot of debate to be had around farming. And does the term farm even mean an animal farm? As we, our, my generation, may remember farms as. How are we becoming used to wind farms, solar farms, even vertical farms, perhaps even we'll mention floating farms. But where does the future lie with farming? And there's nobody better than to tell us about farming than Roger. So, Roger, welcome back to UK Column. Please give us a brief introduction of yourself, where you are and what you do. Hi, thanks, Debbie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I started off as a vet um, qualified in the early 1990s and uh, actually went into a farm only practice. So I sort of got into the into the farming side of the whole veterinary industry very early on and actually ended up leaving that side of of um, my veterinary interest, which is really my first love in veterinary medicine was, was the farming side. Um, and that was primarily because a, I switched to using alternative methods, which didn't really lend themselves very easily to the, to farming situations. But also because I could see after um, the BSE situation, my gut feeling even back then was that the government was moving towards, you know, severely restricting farming, and you know, I, I felt that I needed to add a add other. Um, other eggs in my basket. So I've kept an interest in the farming side of things because that's always been my main, you know, big interest of mine in in, in the veterinary side of things. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to be here and have a chat through some of my concerns. And I'm sure, you know, some of those concerns will be mirrored by, by the farming community as well. Would you say that farming's almost become demonised and that it seems to me that farmers are getting a really bad deal at the moment. And when I was growing up, even though I was born in a city and I'm a city girl, although I live in Cornwall now, um, I remember there being many more farms than there are now. And the, the small farms, I mean, um, are you, have you noticed a difference through your career? Have you seen a difference in the size of farms or the diminishment of small farms? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, um, I think when I first qualified, most of the farms that I went to, so certainly from the dairy side, probably were between 100 to 200 head of, of, of cows. Um, and if you had a bigger one, it was, you know, it's unusual. There might have been one that had 300, you might have had one that was 500. Um, but that's very much the norm now. You know, the, the, the squeeze has been put on the farmers. And it's meant that they've got to go to much bigger farms in order to spread those overheads and you know reduce farm farm workers increase more on rely more on mechanization and automation and you know i think i came across one one farm and they had 2000 dairy dairy cows and the production has gone up massively as well because the farmers are under so much pressure um, so absolutely, it has totally changed in in terms of how farming used to be done. And, and you're right, you know, farmers do get demonised. Um, you know, you just think of some of the, you know, something like Wallace and Gromit, where you know the evil farmer is is sort of 
extorting and and uh, taking advantage of the animals. And yet, you know, every farmer that I ever got involved with loved their job. They loved their animals. They loved what they were doing, and they were very much aware of their welfare. They did the best that they possibly could. They got upset if you know we went to a carving. You can't. Unfortunately, you can't save them all. Um, you know, they'd be upset if, if we lost a calf um, and, and likewise cows and, and they had their favourites. So, you know, this whole idea that, that farmers are exploitative, it, it's been, it, it has been built up and it, 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 it doesn't make things easy for them. You know, they do a job that is really 24-7. Um, so, for example, if you had a dairy cow, you know they they'd start milking very early in the morning. The cows would they'd, they'd have to clear up after that, and then they do odd jobs around the farm, um, and then they do their evening milking and sort of check to make sure any cow see if any cows are calving, and if they were, they'd go back later in the evening to see how they were doing, and if they still hadn't calved but they felt they were okay they'd go back and check them again so then maybe at midnight so you know their day runs from you know four or five o'clock in the morning maybe even earlier and through to through to midnight and and later if you know that cow then needs calving and needs a veterinary assistance you know have to come out perhaps do a cesarean or something so you know the people talk about a 40 hour week and they want to reduce it down to four days a week or maybe 35 hours a week. And you say, well, farmers would laugh at that. They do that in two days. Um, so, you know, it is, um, it's a very different scenario from how they're portrayed to the public and farmers work bloody hard. Um, you know, and they're taking on huge risks because obviously if you've got a bigger herd, if there's an outbreak of, or foot and mouth or something they're not they're not losing a hundred they might be losing 500 or 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 more cows if in that situation so you know there are there are big risks and the supermarkets squeeze the profits for you know minimal reward considering the hours and the investment they put into it all and you know it's because we had a chat about this obviously before and it's little things that we don't think about members of the public um don't think about you were talking about the hedgerows you know farmers will trim the hedgerows in order to keep the roads tidy because it's keeping their animals in so they tend to the land but what i was surprised to hear well possibly not surprised to hear with the cost of living and 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 the desperation that farmers seem to find themselves in now is that many farmers are having to make very difficult choices and rent out their land to maybe a mast, a phone mast provider or someone that wants to put a solar farm on, on some of their land or wind farms. Are you finding that this is happening a lot? Because obviously you don't have to tend to a load of solar panels, particularly not like you would a, a herd of cows. I mean, how, how much is this happening? How pressured are farmers into finding other means of income? Yeah, certainly they're under pressure. You know, they're being incentivized. I think there was a great interview that actually UK Column put out uh, a few months ago with with a farmer, and he was talking about how they're being paid to diversify and to not produce food. And they, they, you know, they they do look after the countryside, um, and they don't get paid for doing. Well, they are getting paid a little bit now to to do to do that sort of thing, and it's getting to the point where they they're making more money from having a solar farm or a wind farm, or you know, having a an, an electromagnetic mask from for telecoms or whatever on their property. Um, and if they've got you know children who perhaps in past generations would take on the farm and go on to to continue the farming, they're now looking. That the work that their parents and the hours that they're having to put in to struggle to keep to keep going, and they're deciding that they actually don't want to go into farming, or certainly don't want to do it in that way. So, you know, farmers who've who've had generations on on the land are suddenly finding that they've got nobody to take take it forward, and if they can make more money or as much money by having solar farms or other sort of diversifications that they're being paid and encouraged to do. And actually, I think if they don't do a certain amount of it, you know, they, they almost get penalized. So there are, 
you know, the, the incentives and the pressure on on farmers is is you know it comes from a lot of different directions and i know a lot of the you know again there's this idea that farmers are huge wealthy landowners and i'm not saying that those those sort of farmers and those landowners don't exist of course they do but they're very much in the minority and certainly the tenant farmers uh they don't own their land they've got to pay rent to be on their farms and, and they're under pressure and you know the hill farmers in wales uh, uh and, and it's they're under huge pressure and have very very little income really spare um so the public really don't have um a very true picture of of the hardship that many of them are, are undergoing and of course not only are they undergoing all that hardship but we seem to be being driven at an accelerated pace into eating a plant-based diet um we are seeing more and more vegan products and you know again you got me thinking big time because you highlighted that in order well no i'll let you explain but basically my question would be is um by eating a vegan diet are we protecting animals yeah it's a, it's a good point debbie ultimately there is no such thing as food production where animals don't unfortunately get killed you know, if you've if if you've got an arable farmer who's got crops, they've got to pay, um, got to spray with pesticides, or and and then they've got to keep sort of the wild deer population, which has really got out of control, um, and, and sort of wild grazers from from damaging the crops uh, and eating the crops, and also once they're once they've been cut and they're in storage, you know, they've got to keep the vermin, the rats and the mice from from trying to steal the grains and and everything else, um. And like it or not, those those animals end up, you know, having to having to be killed to, to to protect the crop and protect the food because you know you don't want that sort of um, infection. You don't want you know rat and mouse urine or all the grains and everything. It's in, in for, for disease point of view. So there is no such thing as animal free um, farming. It, it just doesn't exist. Um, but you know, certainly there is an agenda to push, um, to push the veganism, push the plant-based diet, really based on very biased um, nutrition research, and it it's just not the way we're supposed to be. And yeah, it's the farm the farmers are under pressure if if they if they aren't producing sufficient. Um, quantities of food then they won't have the income you know you can't downsize a farm to a point where it's it's underproductive and it doesn't support itself that that just isn't going to happen ultimately the farmers have got to make a living from it um and if we all get pushed into plant-based foods um and franken franken food and insects and all the rest of it that we seem to be being pushed down then you know the, the the animals aren't going to live. The farmers can't afford to just keep animals in the fields um, to look nice for someone who wants to drive down the road. Not that we'd be allowed to do those from fifteen minute cities either. But you know there are huge knock ons. Um, you know we spoke before about our pet carnivores, cats and dogs. You know they, farmers aren't going to be paid to to keep cattle for for our pet carnivores either. So. You know there are big implications for our food chain, and um, yeah, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of politics involved on on all sides, unfortunately, as usual. See, this is really interesting for me because you know, as many of our regular viewers will have seen your two previous interviews, but if you haven't, the links will appear in the article beneath uh, this interview. But in one of our last interviews, Roger, we were talking about raw feeding. Um, dogs and cats and and what animals were designed to eat meat and what animals aren't designed to eat meat and it's very interesting to hear you say that you know dogs and cats that they've got the the equipment on board if you like to be able to deal with eating raw a, a, a cat a cat will catch a bird um a dog maybe catch a rabbit that they're, they're designed to eat like that in the wild how are we designed? Are we designed to eat a plant-based diet, which is what, and insects? I mean, 
because as a vet, you know the anatomy and physiology of different animals. And you've been telling me about the differences in animals and how they can adapt to different diets or not adapt to a different diet. But what are we, what can we cope with? Can we survive on a plant-based diet really? Or are we carnivores? Yeah, it's a good question, Debbie. Obviously, you know, I'm a vet um, and I will say I'm not qualified to give human nutrition advice. But on the other hand, if people are interested, I actually myself have a full carnivore diet um, and I've been eating that way now for about four or five months. And I haven't taken that decision lightly and I've done a lot of research into it. Um, and there's a there's a doctor called Dr. Chaffee who's got a great um youtube channel and he goes into the science of it in depth he's been a carnivore i think for probably about eight or nine years and um you know he he's you know we are an alpha predator there is no other alpha predator on the planet that isn't a meat eater and whilst as i said with the cats and dogs whilst we can eat other foods what we need to be at our best and what we need to um, what we can survive on aren't necessarily the same. Um, so yeah, we we don't have a fermentation area in our digestive tract, the same as as ruminants. They obviously have a rumen, so they've got their four stomach compound stomach, uh, where, which is really a big fermentation vat for plant material, and the bacteria in there release all the nutrients from the plant material. And, and that gets absorbed by um, by the cows and the ruminants. And then if you look at horses, they've got a, a very large colon. So that's the hind gut. And the fermentation area for, for horses is, is the hind gut. So they have these large fermentation vats um, for plant material that people just don't have. You know, we've our appendix is vestigial. It's often removed. Um although it's now been recognized to have more of an immune function. Um, so I would, uh, and many doctors who are carnivores um, and, and promote it in for, for, for human health will say that we are primarily carnivorous and uh, our stomach acid is, is as equivalent to, to, to the major carnivores. Um, and we are designed primarily to eat meat, although I will say here and now I do cook it. Roger, that really takes me back to square one, if you like, because I'd never, you know, we just, people just don't maybe think about these things. But as you rightly pointed out, farming really only replaced hunting because we would go out and hunt for our food. And then all of a sudden farmers were there to, to provide our food for us. And then you told me, and of course I, I knew this, but I hadn't given it much thought. But if you go into the supermarket, the farmer's produce is tracked. So they're under huge pressure as well, because literally if someone gets ill or there's something wrong with that meat then or that food, then it can be tracked back to that particular farmer. Um, so I'm presuming that they may get penalties there as well or feel that they're under constant surveillance so i can't imagine the stress and the pressure that they must be under am i am i getting that right yeah that that traceability has been brought in partly obviously to monitor in in disease situations but also as you say to um track back on on the food quality as well and farmers are under huge pressure to um produce food within certain parameters so for example um uh, pork pigs who, who are that are, that are slaughtered for meat they're, they're supposed to have a certain back thickness of back fat on them and if it's if it's outside that, that those parameters then they get penalized they don't get the, the, the you know the full price for for, for what they've um, produced and then back in covid when there's all the lockdowns the farmers were absolutely unable it was you know it wasn't their fault it they were forbidden to send the pigs to slaughter and yet when they did they all got penalized because the pigs had obviously grown beyond the, the farmers couldn't not feed them so they had to, to to carry on feeding them they kept on growing and you know that if they came outside those parameters that they were supposed to be delivered within 
then the farmers got penalized for it, which is you know completely wrong um, morally. And and likewise for the broilers, the the meat um, chickens, you know that they are under contract to um, produce chickens that are finished at you know around two point two kilos and at various other um, you know weight points that you see on the shelf in the supermarket. And if if the chickens are underweight or overweight, then you know they will be penalized for it. So but it also penalizes farming because if farmers come across um, techniques that could actually uh, improve the efficiency of farming and, and, and make a change, then it's it's very difficult because they've got their slot in order where they normally send all their chickens off, for example, to the to slaughter at two point two kilos. So if if they do something that's more makes it, it more efficient, then either the birds are going to be heavier by that date, or else there isn't a slot in the in their in the, in the slaughterhouse um, window for to, to bring the the date forward. So you know it sort of it hinders the advancement of of some of the things that that could be done as well. So you know the supermarkets are absolutely totally in control um, about how everything's produced, and if they want to if they want if they want to offer something on special offer then very often that that deduction is passed on to the farmers as well so um you know they they control everything it really does sound as though it's it's the same story as as you know these huge companies literally dominating absolutely everything i want to address another elephant in the room and again i was surprised um when you revealed to me um the amount of pharmaceutical because let's face it this interview is called big pharma as in pharmaceuticals small pharma um as in farming but i was surprised to to know really that pharmaceuticals don't actually figure too much, do they? Not as much as I believe that they did, and certainly not as much as pharmaceuticals figure in in human health. It doesn't really figure as much, does it, in the farming community? Can you explain to us why that is? Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, pharmaceuticals are an overhead for the farms. You know, there is no NHS for farming. Everything that they do has got to be paid for. Um, and that includes, the, you know, the vet's time, um, the, the visit uh, and any pharmaceuticals, anything that's, that's dispensed or prescribed for those animals. So, you know, farmers ideally want to produce um, their farm's health as healthy as possible, with as few vet visits as possible, using as few pharmaceuticals as possible. Um, I think people get the wrong idea because in, I think, the United States, they, they tend to use a lot more hormone um, use in, in their producing their, of, of, their, of their meat. Um, and also there's a, a drug called BST that gets used for, for, for increasing milk production and we we banned it you know it, it didn't come into the UK so farmers get accused of using drugs when actually they don't and anything that they do use has got to have a, a proper withdrawal time on it so um, if if for example uh, an antibiotic is given to a cow with mastitis which is uh, an inflammation of the udder which can make you know the milk not right then the, there is a withdrawal time according to how long the antibiotic stays in the system so that the, it clears and there's no antibiotic passed on in the milk. Um, so, you know, there are certain with drug withdrawals for certain products when they're used within license. And if other drugs, you know, for, for example, there was an antibiotic that wasn't licensed for cattle, but actually turned out to have the sensitivity that was right for the microorganism, the bacteria that was causing the mastitis, it could be used in the cows because obviously they, they need to be healthy, but there'd be you know, a certain set milk withdrawal time to ensure that 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 drug is actually that antibiotic is withdrawn, um, so that it doesn't go into the food chain. So, you know, the farmers don't get paid for that for that milk that gets discarded when it's in during withdrawal time. They only get paid for the milk that that they send off, and that gets collected by the tanker. So, you know, that they don't want to use drugs as if they if they can help it. 
Uh, and certainly, you know, the, the veterinary industry, we've always been blamed a lot for the whole antimicrobial resistance. And I think that's a very unfair label. Um, and I think, you know, so there's been a lot of pressure on the veterinary industry to reduce the use of antibiotics because of the worry over antimicrobial resistance in the human side. Um, and and the, the whole veterinary industry as a whole is very... Um, you know, very conscious of of that responsibility to 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 you know maximise what we've got for antibiotics because you know however you, however you want to to view your health and and whatever method you want to, to to use to keep health, there may well be a time when you get an infection where the only option is an antibiotic, and you know if, if they're not available, that's pretty serious. Actually, Roger, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, we know that um, certainly in the NHS, doctors are given incentives by pharmaceutical companies. Um, and hence, we get specific drugs rolled out at specific times, depending on what the incentives are. With vets, do are vets not under the same pressure from pharmaceutical companies to roll out their drugs or is it because vets have got more um, ways of generating income from perhaps promoting food, kibble foods and um, animal accessories, etc.? Is there because there's a bigger market, they've got more scope or are they not under as much pressure from the pharmaceutical companies as doctors seem to be? I think I think the you know vets are under pressure. There's there's a lot of input from the pharmaceutical industry, certainly in terms of the training, um, and you know the the drug reps will go round to the vet practices the same as they go round to the doctor's surgeries, and they'll be promoting their latest, you know what you know pharmaceutical for whatever condition um, and all the rest of it. So, um, you know they are under pressure from from that point of view, and obviously the way medicine is taught and you know across the human and and animals fronts you know there is a huge reliance on the pharmaceutical industry but there are farmers who um who use homeopathy there's a homeopathy at, at welly level um group um where the, the farmers are taught to use homeopathy instead um and, and those farmers who use it obviously getting good results otherwise they wouldn't be able to stay in business but it's you know it's rubbished by the mainstream veterinary profession it's and obviously it's under a lot of pressure from um you know from the pharmaceutical industry as well so there are other options but uh you know the, it requires spending time to do the training and understanding to you know and then and then that big step of faith to to use it when you know for years they've been told it doesn't work and this and pharmaceuticals are the only way forward so you know that's um yeah there's a lot of pressure not to not to go down another route a lot of it from fear and also um not just fear i think but i want to just touch on the effects of defra and the powers that the departments of um environment and rural affairs has i mean i don't know an awful lot about how defra works but how do you find working with defra and how do you find farmers working with defra and could they for example do what um has been done to us which is well basically there's a pandemic uh, and we need to vaccinate all animals do defra have the power to do that yeah, I mean, DEFRA certainly have have power, and you can understand to a certain degree why. You know, all farmers have got to have a registered um, holding number, so all the farms are effectively registered, and all the animals on the farms have to be, you know, tagged um, so that they can be uh, recorded. And and uh, obviously, part of that is the traceability with that we've already spoken about the supermarkets but also there's a disease traceability as well because if if animals pass through an animal market and then there's an outbreak somewhere on a farm that's received some animals they need that just come into the herd then or the flock then they need to know where they've come from and that just to trace back especially if it's a notifiable disease so defra certainly has a certain degree of power in that and i can understand why they might need it in certain circumstances um 
you're quite right though that if um the, oh, let's go back a bit the world health organization has got this policy which they call one health um which is sort of a parallel between human and animal health and there've been a few um outputting shall we say in not too recent or in recent months where they've blamed human disease as their origin um from human from animal disease so they're basically saying that all animal, all human disease comes from animals which is completely wrong um but there is this this pressure and potentially if a pandemic was considered uh to be a zoonosis so that it could pass between animals and humans and vice versa then the world health organization under the basis of the international health regulations and the pandemic treaty that it has in the pipeline um could potentially mandate uh actions to be taken with regard to livestock and animals in a country and if that was made passed into law then you know defra or whoever would be mandated to follow those laws um and to enforce whatever edicts that come down from the world health organization so you know it, on one level they have power within the uk defra but obviously if these edicts came down from outside from the world health organization if the uk government haven't put in their objections and we're automatically signed up to these treaties then defra could find themselves whether they like it or not having to you know mandate and enforce uh, whatever laws have been passed and that could in, you know could could include a mass cull slaughter like happened with the foot and mouth disease um that happened in, the, in you know in the early 2000s i wanted to ask you actually about that because um you know we've heard so much i mean in this country in the uk we've seen huge disasters with bse foot and mouth we've recently had avian flu i mean it was only less than a year ago that every single bird had to be kept indoors even people that had a couple of chickens in their back gardens um what kind of effects looking back roger um i mean we the public saw what was on the news but hey you know we all know how to take the news these days but what effects did you see all of those disasters having upon farming in britain certainly with the um you know bse had had an effect um it, there were certain cohorts of of cattle which had had certain um products of of food and certain batches that turned out to be more at risk um than others so you know at least it, although it was a notifiable disease it was there was no um horizontal transmission between cows it could only only came through the feed so that there was no risk for it to being passed on to other cows within a herd and individual cows could be you know culled on the basis once they started showing symptoms um so the the bse although it had an effect on the national herd and to certain farmers who had relied heavily on on certain batches of feed it within their herds they lost quite a lot of cows but they did get individually compensated for it um when it came to the foot and mouth it was very much if if it was found on the farm then the you know all the cows were slaughtered even if there was only necessary symptoms were only showing in a few individuals because you you can't you couldn't assume that there weren't other cows within the herd incubating it so the modeling was done by um professor ferguson again um his models have been heavily criticized in the aftermath of that and it, i think within the veterinary profession they would say that the um number of cows killed was um was ott and but it, you know it was devastating to those farmers obviously they they'd spent years breeding and you know checking to make sure to maximize their herd and they they knew those animals from birth uh, and they were seem massively hugely upset and and traumatized by by seeing their their herd being slaughtered and and burnt as they were as we saw them saw the you know the funeral pyres if you like on the on the field so you know that was that was highly traumatic for farmers and a lot of them 
took that opportunity, I think, to, to get out of farming as well, um, because it was it was so traumatic for them. Um, and certainly, obviously, more recently with the avian flu, you know, the, the, the problem is it, it, the wild bird life population can also be a reservoir. So it's um, you're trying to stop the spread of something that birds can in the wild can fly around and potentially spread to, to to birds that are wandering around outside for free range. So you know that it is it, it's a problem. Um, I think my my take on it is if if the if the animals were under less pressure, they would have a stronger immune system. Um, but the animals are under pressure because the government have demanded the food production of the Second World War. A lot of it started for, for farmers to produce. So farmers are caught between a rock and a hard place where you know, society has demanded they have high production and put the pressure on to, to, to do so and maximise it with, you know, with the, the supermarket squeezing on the prices. Yet at the same time, they would, they would love to be able to, to run a much more extensive um, system, um, but, but but they're under financial pressures to be productive. So they you know they're caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place. Although having said that, you know there are farmers who are starting to go back into you know more regenerative farming, and you know those are the sorts of farmers that we should be um, supporting and encouraging, and going back to some of the old ways of mixed farming and crop cycling and field rotation. And, and getting away from all this monoculture, which uh, obviously depletes the soil and uh, has done for decades. Um, I mean, this was recognized in, in, the, in the United States in the 1930s, where I think there was a statement that said, never has the nation been so well fed, but so undernourished, because actually the food didn't have the nutrients that it, it should necessarily have. It looked it looked green, it looked big, it looked great, but actually in terms of the nutrient value, they weren't necessarily there as well. So it, it's a very complex issue and there's pressures from all sides. And even, you know, to be fair to the supermarkets, the government have put pressure on the supermarkets to keep the food prices um, relatively low too, because, you know, when we're getting higher um, fuel costs, um, as, as we did you know, last year especially, uh, uh, and, and people under pressure and obviously with inflation and interest rates and all the rest of it. You know, the government is trying to keep themselves popular and recognising that you know, people are under pressure financially. So they are using their influence to try and keep food prices down as well. And, and if, if British farmers stand fast and say, okay, we can't produce this food for, for, for unless you're going to pay us this price and supermarkets will turn around and go fine. We'll we'll buy it in from from abroad. Obviously, and we and we see a lot of evidence of that on on the supermarket shelves already. Yeah. So okay. So I'm listening to this and I'm thinking to myself, right? So many small farms have disappeared, which means their big farms are more difficult to get to, and farmers are being squeezed by the supermarkets. So a solution to this, obviously, would be for farmers to sell direct to us, the public. But of course, if the farms are now not easily accessible and we're not going to be able to travel uh, very far, then that in itself creates yet another problem. How can we persuade or ask farmers um, to consider selling to us direct i mean would they trust the public to buy direct from them and do you think it's fair to ask them even to sell direct or perhaps you think that's maybe the only way forward certainly there are options you know some some farms will have their own farm shops where people can go and that you know the produce will come straight from the fields on on there and you know maybe that farm shop will you will will you know have other farmers in the locality who will supply so maybe an arable farm will have the farm shop but they'll buy meat in from a local farmer that they know down the road who's a friend and and, and sell their meat as well so there are farm shops which i would encourage people to you know to to to, to go to there are farmers markets you know some of the towns will will have farmers markets at various times um a week 
maybe two, two or three times during the week. Um, uh, and different farms in a local area will will have them at different times. So, and some farmers will be able to sell their produce online. So you know you can get um, you know buy in bulk of effectively, or, or rather than just buy one one or two meals at a time um and and do it that way so there are ways of of accessing um you know healthy happy produce um and i would encourage i would encourage people to support those outlets where they can um and, and very often you know although the meat might be a little bit more expensive very often the the, the veggies is cheaper you know the supermarkets tend to have lost leaders in certain product ranges so you know if if people um shop around they can probably find a way of of not making a huge difference to 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 what they're having to spend on food but actually increasing the quality of what they're getting because the middle people are being being cut out and ultimately you know supply and demand usually drives everything so you know i would encourage farmers you know to to you know even get together in in terms of um finding groups and you know there are that you know there are food cooperations springing up around the country as well for people who who want to source direct and locally um so i would encourage farmers to reach out and and find out who's doing what in certain areas and encourage encourage them to you know to to, to try and find other ways of getting their food direct so that they get a fair price allows gives them a bit of financial freedom to, to be a bit more extensive on how they do it and you know have a have a look into the regenerative farming you know the, the it, it is certainly developing and you know it, it, it they can they can do that and uh, and maintain their income as all necessary you know potentially improve it if uh, you know if they if they found the right way of getting their produce to market that uh, that is more direct I think it's a great idea and I think you know often if you do go to a farm shop or you go direct to the farmer yes it we are being squeezed the cost of living is is getting to everybody but often you may just pay that little bit extra but the nutrition that you get back is is phenomenal compared to something that you could pick up at um a supermarket for example and of course you're not going to have to give a local farm shop i would presume your biometric data which that's the way we look as though we're going with supermarkets at the moment you know are you ever going to be able to get into a supermarket should you want to um, unless you give your biometric data and we're already seeing many or hearing of many reports where supermarket car parks are being full filled with NHS scanners and breath testers and future health um, examinations. So I don't know if anybody's actually going to want to go to a, a supermarket anytime soon. But, you know, looking at all of these hurdles that farmers are having to, to I mean, they're literally everywhere hurdles everywhere and on top of that we've got this whole rewilding project going on so we can see land grabs in Cornwall here for example I know that there are farmers that have literally lost their land to natural England uh, for rewilding um, and, and for preservation so What's the deal, Roger, with tenant farmers? Do we still have tenant farmers? Are they finding that their land is being taken back by authorities? Um, do we have any tenant farmers left? Yeah, I think we do. That there are tenant farmers, absolutely. But um, and hopefully they've got good long contracts that that stop those sorts of sorts of grabs. But certainly, some of some of the um, farmers. Uh, or livestock holders who perhaps got commoners' rights on some of our national parks. Now, some of those are being found that those are being withdrawn and restricted, and the numbers pulled back. Um, so yeah, they're, you know they are under pressure fr from from that point of view. And you know, one of the reasons we we were able to hold out during the Second World War was because we were so you know self um, self sufficient. I mean, as you know, we spoke the very first time I did a, a letter of concern about the potential use of mRNA jabs in, in food animals. And, you know, our, my concern is, OK, even if we're successful in, in stopping those jabs being used in the UK, 
if they are being used in other countries and we aren't self-sufficient in our food, you know, if those food, if that that food is only being moved around from from countries where they are using mRNA jabs on their animals, then you know we we are in that that situation where we are forced, if we want to eat meat, to you know to, to source it from a country where those jabs are being used, and we have no idea then what the safety of of that food is. So, you know, it is important that we support our farmers and buy British as much as you possibly can because i would say you know our welfare here is on the whole absolutely much better than 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 any other country around um and there's always going to be the odd bad apple in a barrel there's but on on the hand on the other hand you know if, if if the animals aren't being well looked after they aren't going to survive they aren't going to thrive and the farmers aren't going to survive very well either so i would argue that actually british farming is is the pinnacle of 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 in many ways of the farming worldwide and the welfare here is is as good as we can make it obviously we always try to improve it but again it's got to be done within the financial constraints Um, and if we want to keep that animal welfare high and support our farmers and also then have much of a, a more to greater degree of control over the food quality and how it's produced then you know we we can do that best by by controlling what goes on in in our own country so i would say you know buy british i am really reassured to hear this you know i'm really reassured um because animal welfare is it's always been top of my radar as i'm sure many of our viewers um will uh, it will be on top of their radars too and looking after animals i mean i adore animals i think you know we are a country we're meant to be a country and a nation of animal lovers but I want to just ask you because those of those viewers that may not realise that Roger is actually also an expert in EMF, um, electromagnetic frequencies, and I just want to ask you, Roger, with all of these masts going up all over the place, what effects is, is could that have on our animals? Because essentially, that is the welfare of our animals. I mean. I can't imagine what it must feel like for animals to be in a field literally next to a phone mask. What impact does that have? Yeah, Debbie, absolutely. Um, you know, you drive around and you see masks very much, you know, and very often very close to the farm buildings as well, you know, that because they've probably come in on the, got to be powered. So they, they keep the mast fairly close to the buildings so that uh, the all the cabling doesn't have to travel huge distances across fields away from where maybe the animals are being housed. So there are absolutely lots of studies to show that animals are adversely affected by um, the signals from from the masts and the, and the telecoms. So um, and, and birds are very much actually more susceptible to uh, EMFs than 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 we are than than other mammals because the feather actually channels the signal in deeper into the body that it creates what's called a piezoelectric effect so that the birds are very much more harmed by and distressed by the emfs than than, than, than say cattle or, or sheep um but even when it comes to um you know to, to, to sort of pigs or, or, or cattle um the mast, the signals from the mast are causing defects birth defects dna damage increased disease um, and it will, and obviously we know it affects human fertility, so it will affect um, their fertility as well. So, you know that that is important for for, for farming production. Um, and actually, there's been research done in um, in Russia who are light years ahead of of us in terms of understanding frequency and microwaves, especially on the body. And they will say that. Uh, you know, even if water or food is exposed to these microwave frequencies, the harm from from those frequencies will be carried into the body via the water and via the food. So the idea that uh, millimeter waves don't affect us very much because they don't penetrate very far into the body is, you know, again completely wrong, um, because there are other ways that uh, 
that the, the EMFs, even of a very short wavelength, um, can still penetrate deeper into the body than we're being let on to believe. I mean, it's it's a whole new subject, isn't it, of it of its own? Um, just that. So maybe we'll have to do an EMF special as well, Roger, because your knowledge on that is huge. Um, and another area that, again, I hadn't thought of until you you said to me, you know, this whole agenda moving forward. Um, are we ever going to? Uh, is is British farming going to survive? It's not just the farmer, is it? It's the equipment, because as you reminded me, tractors operate on diesel um, and they get stuck in mud. So how does an electric tractor work or doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Debbie. You know, certainly in the in the winter, you see fields where perhaps, especially something like an you know, outdoor pig unit, and you'll see where the tracks around all the all the outside pens where the pigs are kept and you'll see how deep the mud is and how slushy it is and, and all the mud that gets kicked onto the road by the farmers coming back onto the road to go between the different fields if they've got to got to use the roads to do that. Um, so you can imagine, that, and, and the power the tractors have, you know, that they, they need that power for doing the jobs that they do. So in order to generate that amount of, of power electrically would require massive batteries. There is no way that a field that's been freshly ploughed in relatively soft ground, or especially sort of something that's very clay ground, you know, in, in the wet, the, the, the mass of the weight of, of the tractors uh, and would, would just they would just sink. They would. They'd end up being bogged down in fields. Um, you know, they would only really be viable in the middle of the summer when the when the ground is baked hard. Um, so you know, the, it's yeah. There's no there's no viability there as, as pretty much. There's no viability for you know for our cars long term either. Well, so I was going to ask you about the viability of of your own profession of vets because if we're seeing smaller. Um, farms disappearing um, and larger farms, but more spaced out. I mean, traditionally, you know, I remember the vet being down the road, the vet being a mile away. How does this, how does the farming community per se impact on your profession specifically? Yes, Debbie, it's had a massive impact. You know, when I first qualified the practice that I worked at, you know, the, the farms were, we had a lot of farms in a relatively small area, and there was four of us that covered that that area. Um, but partly to do with um, specialisation within the profession, and partly to do with small farms, you know, deciding to get out of farming, and big farms getting bigger. Though they then become that much more spaced apart, and if 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 a practice hasn't, you know, a lot of you think back to James Herriot days, you know, very, virtually every practice was a mixed practice, so they all did all species, um, and because the farms now have become very much um, more sparsely, uh, popular, you know, so they're spread out so much more. If if a, if a practice has only got one or two or five farms left in its normal territory. It's not. They will say it's not viable to, you know, to keep servicing those farms. So I remember my old boss. He, we had a conversation many years after I'd, I'd I'd moved on from there. We kept in contact because we were good friends, and he said to me, "You know, we we got we picked up another farm the other day, but it's you know 150 miles away." And the practice who told us and said, "Oh, we've um we've gone out of farming, so we've recommended to you." So. Well, thanks, but what for? You know, it's I've got to now have cover a much huge, larger area, um, and for a vet to drive 150 miles to get to a farm, a it's not particularly viable in an emergency situation. It's it's not very it's not very good for for the animal. It's certainly not good for for the vets to be spending so much more time driving between the farms instead of actually working and and doing what they need to do on the farms. Uh, and, and helping out, so you know the the farming side of the profession has become spread out, um, covering huge patches, and um, you know not necessarily as accessible as they would like to be. Um, 
you know, to, to those farmers as well. And although the, the veterinary profession has tried to move, certainly on the farming side, to be more preventative um, than reactive, because then you can timetable preventative visits and try and make sure things are as good as possible and emergencies are as minimized as possible so that those, you know, long drives in, uh, you know, in that emergency situation are minimized, to, you know, as much as possible, you know, you'll never fully, fully stop them. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is a problem. It is a problem for the veterinary profession. And I would likewise say that the veterinary profession needs to be aware that if, you know, if they continue to support the sort of policies which look like they are pushing farmers to move out of um, farming, animal farming, um, then you know where where is the farm animal um, vet profession going to be? You know there isn't going to be a job for us potentially either. So you know keeping quiet may be the easy option. Um, you know, I think I saw a, read a quote the other day, and it said, "If you if you sleep in a democracy, you'll wake up in a dictatorship." Um, so it it's it's very much the time now where you know we need to be aware of the threats and and, and have conversations with the farmers, with with the you know everybody involved to see what is the long term um, plans for this. What are the what is the viability and what are the implications of some of the. Um, diversity pressures which are being put on farmers to help to maintain our food you know our, our, our food supplies for ourselves i know we're potentially heading into another war situation in the middle east we don't know how that's going to knock on and, and go into other areas um might affect food transport to the uk so you know we are vulnerable not necessarily because things are happening on our border, but if something is happening um, much further away, but it interferes with the, with the whole food transport chain, and also you know we all this pressure for for re- reducing flying around the world, you know if if, if we're not producing the, the food ourselves, it can only come in from around the world. So you know if they're going to start putting big premiums on 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 food that's been traveled because of carbon footprints and all the rest of it whether that's right or wrong is 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 irrelevant to the fact that the bill will be passed on to to us or else the food won't be available um so you know these are these are important conversations that need to be had because the implications are are far reaching i think you're absolutely right i think they are very important conversations to be had and i hope that maybe some of our audience now that are listening, that if you're in the farming profession and you do want to help us work out a way that we can support you um, in order to, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm listening to you, Roger, and I, and I think I'm, I'm worried certainly about the future of farming in the UK. And I think everybody watching this should also be concerned. But if you are out there and you are a farmer, um, clearly it's not easy out there. We would love to hear from you. And perhaps we can have a discussion, you know, a round table discussion of how to move forward and what is the best way for the public to support farming. And clearly I think that if you're in a position and you're watching now and you're in a rural area, you're fortunate enough to know where there is going to be a local farmer's market or there is a farm close by, then please think about supporting your local farmer because clearly, you know, we're not going to have any farms very soon. And that was going to be really, as I as I wind up, Roger, was going to be my final question to you of through the eyes of a vet, you're right there watching it all, you're in the thick of it. What do you think or what do you see the future of Britain's farming as being? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful. I, I try to keep positive and I, you know, I want farming to, to carry on because, you know, I think, you know, our welfare is very good and it's important that British farmers do do carry on and keep pushing those boundaries and get back to the more regenerative farming again and um so i would encourage farmers to you know to, to look to being regenerative being less dependent on agrochem as well as farmer finding other ways to do things taking the pressure off 
off their animals so that they will you know be be more resilient um as well um and as you say encourage people who um you know to buy locally as much as possible you know our, our local food is always our best food um to try and you know look at setting up cooperatives there are people who are already doing it just search for them online i'm sure they they'll you know, be really relatively easily found and will be happy to spread their concepts of how they run their their food cooperatives so that others can do likewise in their own areas um and you know encourage you know the farmers and, and those who are interested in in maximizing their, their their food quality and uh, and keeping things local and, and keeping supporting our countryside um which is part of it as well you know encourage those groups to to, to get together and and work it out and roger before i throw to you for the last word because really we've only we've only scraped the ice the, the tip of the iceberg haven't we because farming is such a huge huge subject and i'm sure there's plenty of our audience going oh but we need to know this or could you ask that and there's going to be some questions um and i know there already are some questions which i've been throwing your way too um so how do people get in contact with you where do they find you yeah i'm i'm fairly easily findable on on the net just put my name in and you'll come up with my my websites i've got naturalhealingsolutions.co.uk which is my sort of normal veterinary um practice uh, website that explains all the alternative things that i do um so but yeah i mean just just find find me contact me i'm fairly approachable i don't bite and um yeah happy happy to hear from people um you know i'm trying to also get the word out internationally so if there are international farmers and vets who are watching this who you know who haven't heard about the open letter of concern about the mrna jabs in animals then please get in contact with me because i do see this as a worldwide problem because food is being moved worldwide and and we need to all be singing off the same song sheet uh, and you know, people need to get up to speed with what the potential dangers are, um, uh, and hopefully, you know, we can move forward and keep everything going as we want it to be in the future. I completely agree with you, and you know, my last word um, for today is going to be to people out there: buy local, whichever country you're in. We're talking today about the United Kingdom. So I would say to people in the UK, buy British, buy local, support your local farmer. It might take you a little bit longer to get to the farm than the supermarket, but the benefits are absolutely huge. And whatever country you're living in, grow your own, buy local and support your local producers, not the globalists, because they really don't have your best interests at heart. And on that note, Roger, I'm sure we're going to be meeting again very soon. And I'm incredibly grateful to you. And if there are any other vets that are watching as well who would like to get in contact with Roger um, or who would like to contribute to the discussion, have something to add, we're always up for a discussion. So please do, do get in touch. So on that note, Roger, thank you so much. And over to you for the last word. Thanks, Debbie. I mean, uh as we said, sort of fairly close to the beginning, you know, farmers are often demonised um, unjustly for for being cruel and and all the rest of it. And you know, I just want to get that message across that that farmers care deeply for their animals. They wouldn't do the job twenty four seven, three six five, unless they actually had that empathy and their, you know, that their love for their animals in a way that perhaps people who are pet owners don't necessarily understand because the food is, you know, the, the animals are going for slaughter. But you know, that is providing a service to us. It, it is part of our evolutionary diet that we eat meat, and we need to recognise that. And um, although slaughterhouses aren't perhaps, don't sound like the nicest places on earth, and they're not, but on the other hand, you know, we push the welfare there as much as we possibly can, and we need to bear in mind that um you know the options as you said was in the past we'd go out and hunt and you know 
if someone wasn't a very good shot, that animal could be injured, um, may not necessarily be caught straight away. So although the whole idea of slaughterhouses doesn't sound very nice, it's actually a much faster, cleaner, quicker way than that than happens in nature. And you know, nature is cruel. You know, you watch some of these um, programs where carnivores are hunting, and you know, they animals get chased. They they're in fear while they're being chased. Obviously, they then get jumped on by however many animals. Don't necessarily die straight away. Um, and you look at the Komodo dragons. You know, they bite the the ankle of a wildebeest and follow or a buffalo and follow it around for three days until sepsis sets in, and then the beast dies and they eat it. So, you know, what we're what we do with our own food um, production, it, it, we've got to keep it in context with with what it's replaced and you know not saying it's perfect by any means but we push to do the best that we can for 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 the animals and um you know those of us who who are involved in in the veterinary side of of looking after the animals are you know very aware of our responsibility to to the public in terms of the food quality the animal quality and quite frankly with the state of farming at the moment if if the animals weren't happy they wouldn't necessarily be as productive as they were as they are. So, you know, it, we, we everybody's doing their best. Everybody's doing their best, and we know that it's not perfect, but we're we're pushing as much as we can in, in that direction.